Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, May 21st, 2014. We will be doing our light episode today. We're going to be launching into a new series, Details Forthwith. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, like I said, uh, today's Wednesday. This is the day we normally do our light episode. We will be doing our light episode today, and we're going to be launching into a new series. We'll be listening to a series of lectures delivered by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. On the book of 1 Corinthians. That's right, 1 Corinthians. Now, today's episode will be a little bit longer than the the next episodes on Wednesdays. And the reason why is because we're going to actually put two of them together. Uh, Because lecture number one is really kind of an introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians itself and is a little bit shorter. Today's uh, episode will include both the introduction lecture as well as lecture number one on the content of 1 Corinthians. We'll take a break between the two of them. And uh, since, you know, that's what we're going to do today, that's what we do, uh, you know, every week we have a light episode. Let's get right to it. Here is Pastor Ron Hodel and his lecture series on the book of 1 Corinthians. Here we go. Okay, well, uh, we're going to be doing 1 Corinthians. And uh, uh, so what I want to do is give you uh, some some, uh, information uh, ahead, uh, you know, just a little bit of uh, information about... uh, Corinth and and whatnot, but to start with, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read what Luther wrote as a synopsis of First Corinthians. And so, if you listen to this, then you can skip Bible class until I'm done with First Corinthians because Luther has said it all. But I'd be really tickled if you'd come. It makes me feel good. And um, so, uh, his preface to the first uh, epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. In this epistle, St. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be of what, be one in faith and love and to see to it that they learn well the chief thing, namely that Christ is our salvation, the thing over which all reason and wisdom stumbles. For it was as in our day when the gospel has come to light. There are many mad saints. We call them... Uh, we. Uh, 
uh, fanatics and heretics who have come, become wise and learned all too quickly and because of their great knowledge and wisdom cannot live in harmony with anyone. One wants to go this way, another that way, as though it would be a great shame if each were not to undertake something special and to put forth his own wisdom. No one can make them out to be fools, though at bottom they neither know nor understand anything about that which is really the chief thing, even though they jabber much about it with their mouths. So it was with St. Paul, too. He had taught his Corinthian, congrega- uh, Corinthian Christian faith, Corinthians, Christian faith and freedom from the law. But then the mad saints came along and the immature know-it-alls. They broke up the unity of the doctrine and caused division among the believers. One claimed to belong to Paul, the other to Apollos, one to Peter, and the other to Christ. One wanted circumcision, the other not. One wanted marriage, the other not. One wanted to eat food offered to idols, the other not. One wanted to be outwardly free. Some of the women wanted to go with uncovered hair, and so on. They went so far that one man abused his liberty and married his father's wife. Some did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and some thought lightly of the sacrament. In short, things got so wild and disorderly that everyone wanted to be the expert and do the teaching and make what he pleased of the gospel, the sacrament, and faith. Meanwhile, they let the main thing drop, namely, that Christ is our salvation, righteousness, and redemption, as if they had long since outgrown it. This truth can never remain intact when people begin to imagine that they are wise and know-it-all. This is exactly what is now happening to us. Now that we, by God's grace, have opened the, go- opened the gospel to the Germans, everyone claims that he is the top expert and alone has the Holy Spirit, as if the gospel had been preached in order that in it we, show, we should show off our cleverness and reason and strive for a reputation. Those Corinthians may well be an example or illustration of our people in these days who also certainly need an apostle uh, an epistle of this kind but this is the way things have to go with the gospel mad saints and immature know-it-alls have to create disturbances and offenses so that those who are tested as saint paul also says here may be revealed therefore saint paul most severely rebukes and condemns this shameful wisdom and makes these connoisseur saints out to be fools He says outright that they know nothing of Christ or of the Spirit and the gifts of God given to us in Christ, and that they had better begin to learn. It takes spiritual folk to understand this. The desire to be wise and the pretense of cleverness in the gospel are the very things that give offense and hinder the knowledge of Christ and God and create disturbances and contentions. This clever wisdom and reason can well serve to make for nothing but mad saints and wild Christians. Yet such people can never know our Lord Christ unless they first become fools again and humbly let themselves be taught and led by the simple word of God. 
This is what St. Paul deals with in the first four chapters. In chapter 5, he rebukes the gross unchastity of a man who has married his father's wife. He would put this man under the ban and give him over to the devil. Thus, he points out the right way of using the ban, that it should be laid with the consent of the believing congregation upon obvious transgressions, as Christ also teaches in Matthew 18. In chapter 6, he rebukes contention and and disputing in the courts, especially before heathen and unbelievers. He teaches them that they should settle their cases among themselves or suffer wrong. In chapter 7, he gives instruction concerning chastity and married life. He praises chastity and virginity, saying that these are helpful in allowing closer attentiveness to the gospel, as Christ also teaches in Matthew 18, concerning celibates who are chaste for the sake of the gospel or the kingdom of heaven. But Paul wills that it be practiced without force or compulsion or the risk of greater sin. Otherwise, marriage is better than a chastity which is continually aflame with passion. In chapters 8 through 12, he discusses many different ways in which weak consciences are to be guided and and regarded in external matters such as eating, drinking, apparel, and receiving the sacrament. Everywhere he forbids the strong to despise the weak, since he himself, even though he is an apostle, has refrained from many things to which he really had a right. Moreover, the strong may well be afraid, because in ancient Israel so many were destroyed, all of whom had been led out of Egypt by miracles. Besides these, he makes several digressions into worthwhile teachings. In chapters 12 and 13, he discusses the many different gifts of God, among which love is the best. He teaches the people not to exalt themselves, but to serve one another in unity of spirit, since there is one God, one Lord, one Spirit, and everything is one, however great the diversity. In chapter 14, he teaches the preachers, prophets, and singers to use their gifts in an orderly manner. They are to display their preaching, skill, and understanding for edification only, and not for gaining honor for themselves. In chapter 15, he takes those to task who had taught and believed wrongly concerning the resurrection of the body. In the last chapter, he exhorts the people to give brotherly assistance to the needy in the form of material aid. That's uh, Luther's preface to the book. Um... Just a little bit of background on Corinth, a little bit of geography and history. The city uh, dates back to the Bronze Age. There's pottery that's been discovered in Corinth that dates back to as early as uh, 6,500 B.C. Uh, Corinth is halfway between Sparta and Athens. And because of where... Anybody been to Corinth? You've been to Corinth? Uh, Because of where it's located, um, it saw more than its fair share of warfare. You had the, the, uh, uh, it's right on an isthmus. And uh, if you're going to pass south in, uh, into the, uh, the, the, peninsula there, um, then you have to uh, cross through Corinth. Uh, If you're going to go north, you have to cross through Corinth. So kind of like Israel in the Old Testament constantly saw more than its fair share of warfare. Israel, when when the Assyrians would attack Egypt, they'd 
you couldn't cross through the desert, uh, so you had to take the uh, Fertile Crescent, go down along the Mediterranean, pass through Israel, practice warfare in Israel, attack the Egyptians. When the Egyptians attacked the Assyrians, got to pass through Israel, attack Israel, practice war on Israel, then go on up into uh, Assyria. So just like like Israel, Corinth is on this uh, this road to warfare. Um, uh, it was a rich and prosperous city by the time uh, St. Paul came along. Um, uh, it it kind of always had been in its history because of its key location. At the time of Paul, it was a Roman uh, cultural center. It was the, the Roman capital of the province of Achaia, which uh, is what we would call um, Greece today. The city was founded by, by uh, you know, uh, at, it's got a long history, but but uh, its most recent history was uh, ex-soldiers and freedmen from Rome founded it. It had a population influx from neighboring uh, uh, areas. So there were Romans, there were Greeks, there were Jews, there were numerous slaves and freed slaves. Um, now there's a very narrow canal. Usually you have to sail around the peninsula to... Uh, to get to the other side. Now there's a very narrow canal that uh, uh, crosses its way through there, and I don't know that I would have the courage in a big ship to go through that canal. My boat would be no problem. I'm pretty, I'm pretty narrow myself, but but it's uh, and the walls just go straight up. Um, morality. Um, not sure if Corinth was uh, known for its sailing, uh, you know, a Corinthian being an, uh, an amateur yachtsman, um, but Corinth was known for its sexual vices. Um, the city had strong ties to the goddess Aphrodite. Uh, there were three temples to this goddess in, in uh, Corinth. Now, Aphrodite didn't live in Corinth. She lived on Mount Olympus, as you all well know. And she was the goddess of love, beauty, and sexuality. Uh, she dated the gods Ares, uh, Poseidon, and Hermes, among others. Uh, her sisters were the tree nymphs and the Furies, and they all formed girl bands back then. Uh, uh, um, she was the mother of Eros and Rhodey, or Rhode, who is the, uh, the sea nymph, the sea nymph of the island of Rhodes. Among others, and no relation to Pastor Rhodey. The names are spelled completely differently. Um, I I can't. I have to walk through here. Um, I'm so sorry about this. So this is a picture of Aphrodite in her younger years. Uh, oh, we got to put a homeschool alert on that. Okay, yeah. um, it's very. Uh, and then. Uh, 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 so she dated Poseidon and Hermes. The tree nymphs and the Furies are her. her uh, uh, she's the mother of Eros and Rhode. Um, this is her posing for a sculptor. Oh, homeschool alert. Sorry about that. Um, so we get that up there too. Um, that was my cool thing that I did for you. Historically, the city was known for um, immorality and prostitution. And Paul ran into a lot of those issues. Uh, the son who married his father's wife, probably his stepmother, that was an issue. He had to bring up the whole issue of sexuality and marriage and divorce in, Corinthian, in, in the, uh, his first letter. Uh, he talked about being equally yoked. Uh, he brings that up in actually 2 Corinthians. But Christian married to Christian because of the challenges that it brings into a family. Uh, to be married to it to a non-Christian. Um, religious pluralism. Uh, Corinth was known to be a very spiritual city. 
I'll bet you just about every city around the world would say, well, we're a very spiritual city because everybody's spiritual. Um, uh, there were sanctuaries and, and uh, statues for all kinds of gods. They all coexisted together. And that's what I wanted to show you. Have you all seen that uh, coexist? Um, they, 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 w- they were the first ones to come up with this. All right. This is just a copy of what uh, was very popular in in Corinth. Um, uh, of course, that created a problem with Christians because the Christians made exclusive claims. Um, Christ is the one and only true living God, and obviously there were Corinthians who had an issue with that. Uh, this was one that I saw on the internet. I've seen it on some cars. This one says this one says contradict contradict. Uh, they can't all be true. John 14, 6. Uh, the founding of the church in Corinth. Paul was the founding father. He was the, the founding pastor of, of the church in Corinth. He founded on his second missionary journey. You read about that in Acts chapter 18. Uh, Silas and Timothy joined him there, and they were hosted by Aquila and Priscilla, who had been expelled from Rome uh, back in uh, the uh, A.D. 4950. So Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, they all actually practiced the same trade. They were all uh, tent makers and and, uh, repaired tents. Um, And that was a very, very important skill back then to us. You know, it'd be kind of a a job that you would have at REI today. Um, But back then, when Rome comes through with its armies and its tents need repairing, I mean, this is this is really big time important business. So after Paul uh, was expelled from the synagogue, and Paul would always start his his ministry in in when he'd get into a city, he would always start off in the synagogue. And after he got expelled from the synagogue, then he and his companions would continue to preach uh, in 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 homes. And as we can tell, Paul preached in the home of Titus Justus. Um, uh, the synagogue leader Crispus, along with other Corinthians, believed and were baptized. And after receiving a vision, Paul remained in Corinth for 18 months, teaching the word of God. Then the Jews rose up against Paul uh, um, and uh, brought a tribunal, uh, brought him before uh, the tribunal of the Roman uh, uh Galileo and Galileo uh, considered this just a, a, a confrontation between two factions of the Jews, and he didn't want to get involved in religious things. Whenever you get involved in religious battles, uh, you, you don't end up on the good side, whatever side you end up on. Um, and so he just dismissed the case. And the reference to Galileo in in, cha- in uh, chapter 18 of Acts enables us to date Paul's ministry in Corinth with some precision. So it's likely that he was there in 52. Uh, and that's, he was there for a year and a half before 52. Uh, and then in 52, he, uh, he left Corinth for Syria. Um, after a brief visit to Ephesus, uh, Caesarea, Jerusalem, and Antioch, he set on his third minis- uh, missionary journey, of which the focus was a three-year ministry in Ephesus. And toward the end of this period, somewhere between 52 and 55, he received word that there were troubles in his congregation there in Corinth, and he wrote his first epistle as an attempt to calm the waters there in Corinth. 
And uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we gather that he wrote um, some weeks before Pentecost. So very likely the letter is dated somewhere around 55 A.D. Um, the religious comp, uh, composition of the congregation. Um, the makeup of the Corinthian congregation seems to be uh, mostly former pagans, uh, God-fearers who had attached themselves to the synagogue because they respected uh, monotheism, the monotheism of, of the Jews, and uh, their high moral standards. Um, the aberrations Paul addresses, sexual immorality, litigiousness, uh, frequent frequenting heathen temples, the denial of a bodily resurrection, those were typical of Gentile pagans. Um, there certainly would have been Jewish Christians uh, there in the congregation, probably a minority. And Paul, as I said, started his, his um, ministry off in the synagogue. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the synagogue leader, uh, Crispus, then becomes a member of the Christian congregation and, of course, that uh, creates all different kinds of problems for, for Paul. Um, problems and benefits. If you have the president of the synagogue come and join your congregation, it lends some credibility to what you're preaching because he, you know, he, he, he didn't just make this change because they had a, a, you know, a cooler seating or something like that uh, or air conditioning. Um, one thing that... Uh, Pastor Middendorf brought up, uh, and it's true with with uh, the church at Corinth was um, the house of 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 uh, Titus Justice was next door to the synagogue. So if you get expelled from the synagogue, you go next door and you're preaching the gospel in a house church. Well, they hadn't come up with double pane windows yet. Okay, and so you could hear Paul preaching in the synagogue. And you can imagine the battles that were going through the windows back and forth between the Christian congregation and the synagogue and uh, how irate different people would get at that kind of uh, situation. But to be able to preach within earshot of the synagogue, what an an opportunity for Paul. Um, Of course, the occasion of the epistle is... uh, uh, First, he had received reports from Chloe's people about the rise of at least four factions that had, that had started to uh, split the congregation there in Corinth. And Paul also needed to respond to several questions that had been put to him in a letter that the Corinthians had written to him. So in chapter 7, he says, Now, about the things you wrote. Sometimes it'd be really nice to have the letter that they wrote him. We've got the answer what exactly was the question? Um, Because that's very helpful to know uh, in some situations. Sometimes it's kind of easy to figure out, other times it's not. But with that, let's, uh, and next time I'll get this on the the screen here. Uh, Let's go ahead and start with 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this first section is, is Paul's greeting. He introduces himself once again. And the first thing that Paul does is he asserts his apostleship, called by the will of God to be an apostle. He has to assert his apostleship in Corinth because there were a number of people in Corinth who didn't accept his apostleship. Now, you might ask, why wouldn't they accept St. Paul as a great apostle? Um, And uh, the answer seems to be that he wasn't with Jesus from the beginning. That seems to be the issue. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, when they are looking for a replacement disciple for Judas, one of the requirements was that uh, this person uh, be someone who had accompanied the disciples and Jesus from the beginning. That from the day of Jesus' baptism to the ascension, they had been around. And Paul had been around but he hadn't been on the right side. And so uh, Paul doesn't seem to fit that category. Um, So why does Paul believe he's an apostle? Well, three times in Acts, Paul talks about his Damascus Road experience. And he ties his being an apostle to that experience. And three times he talks about the Lord sending him. So to be an apostle as we know, is to be one who is sent, kind of like an an ambassador or an emissary. So some say it seems that there are two models on how to become an apostle. One is to serve a long apprentice at the end of which Jesus commissions you to be an apostle. Um, Or the other way to become an apostle is to be the beneficiary of a resurrection appearance by Jesus where he commissions you to be a witness, and an apostle. And that's, that's Paul. Um, but both models, both models uh, had seeing the risen Christ and being commissioned by him. They had both the things in common. Um, but because Paul doesn't seem to fit the model that uh, says that you need to have a long apprenticeship, um, Paul is always having to to defend uh, his his apostleship that, that's constantly dogging him. Well, not not everywhere. Some congregations are challenging his authority at every turn. Okay, uh, Corinth, Galatia, challenging him at every turn. Other congregations were supportive of him. Philippi, Thessalonica. All right. Um, so First Corinthians is written. Uh, before Galatians and, I mean, after Galatians and before Romans. And so some of the issues that he talked about in, in Galatians and issues that he's going to be talking about to the Romans, those are things that are on Paul's mind as he's writing to the Corinthians. Paul called by the will of God. Paul's directly called because God willed it. Um, if God hadn't called Paul, no Christian congregation ever would have. Um, why wouldn't they have been? Why would we have a trouble calling Paul as a pastor? 
his he's got he's got there's opposition. He he uh he, yeah, his opposition to Christianity, yes, right, right. His opposition to the, to the Christians in the beginning. That he had been one who had been persecuting the Christians. So if all of a sudden, I, the great persecutor of Christians, proud of it and bragging of it, um, come in here and say, hey, I want to be your pastor. You go, right, and there's the gate. Okay, but really, I've changed. Yeah, right, um, or you're a spy, all right? So, so people didn't trust him. Um, and Paul acknowledges the challenge. Um, he calls himself the least of the apostles uh, from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Worthy to be called an apostle. So he acknowledges that. Um, even though his apostleship is beyond dispute. Um, he considered himself to be an apostle to the, to the Gentiles. To the church at Rome, he wrote, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So he's least. He's apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul knew that he was nothing in himself. From, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended to you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Least of all, apostle of the Gentiles, I am nothing. But Paul's job was to advance the name and the cause of Jesus, not himself. And so, for, uh, for in the first, first ten verses of his letter to the Corinthians, he refers to Jesus ten times. It's all about Christ. Um, Paul's going to have to be dealing with factions that are arising in the congregation. There are groups of people who had begun to focus on different Christian leaders. And it's really tempting to get your ego stroked if you're a Christian leader, uh, if, if people really like you, you know. And so Paul designs his introduction um, to combat the rising factionalism that is, that is uh, going on in Corinth. Some, some were saying, I, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. In reality, no one in the congregation could say that because Paul was their spiritual father. Uh, he, he'd found the congregation. Um, uh, founding the congregation means in part the Holy Spirit had created believers there. Um, kind of interesting, in, uh, when Paul talks about it, uh, he, in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about having betrothed people to Christ, you know, um, that's what that's what missionaries are doing. They are betrothing people to Christ. He talks about himself that way, um, but he's constantly pointing the congregation to Jesus. Um, he's not a one-man band in all of this. Barnabas is with him. Silas is with him. Timothy is with him. Various brothers he refers to. And, and he's also there with Sosthenes. Um, Paul called to be an apostle of 
an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes uh, is this Sosthenes is probably the same Sosthenes who had been serving in the synagogue and serving as ruler of the synagogue during Paul's first visit to Corinth. Uh, just let me read from Acts chapter eighteen. Um, Acts chapter 18, verse uh, 12 and following. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is, is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Galileo paid no attention. Um, that section talks about the you know the founding days of of that congregation in Corinth. Um, Galileo, proconsul of Achaia, um, what's now modern Greece. Um, the charge against Paul was that this man is is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So it seems the abandonment of the law is what the Jews have against Paul. And of course, uh, Galileo says, if this were a matter of wrongdoing, um, I'd accept your complaint. Uh, but Rome in its early period did not want to get involved in religious disputes. It's a no-win situation. Now the question is, is this the same Sosthenes writing here in 1 Corinthians, that who's with Paul in 1 Corinthians, as back in Acts 18? And we have no reason to believe that it's not. Um, He'd been the leader of the congregation or the, the synagogue. Now he is called brother, which means that he has converted to Christianity. Um, but he's not an apostle. He's a brother, but he's not an apostle. But as I said, it doesn't hurt to have someone who's the former president of the synagogue backing you up. He has leadership skills. Sosthenes does. Um, he had been a credible Jew who had now become a Christian. It wasn't an emotional, unthought-out decision that he made. And so if Sosthenes is converted, there might be something to this Christianity thing. Um, it seems that Sosthenes had left Corinth um, probably because he had been mistreated. He made his home in Ephesus. Uh, because he'd been mistreated for the sake of Christ, he would have been honored by the, the, the congregation there in Corinth. And so Paul mentions his name. Um, Sosthenes is probably writing down this letter at Paul's direction, although it's probably not pure dictation. Um, these two men probably talked over the letter's content, came to a consensus over what should be recorded. Uh, Paul was primarily the primary human author, but the ultimate author was God himself, uh, whom the Spirit uh, inspired um, uh, the, uh, to, to write these holy scriptures. So Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
Paul and Sosthenes address the church of God, which is in Corinth. In other words, the church of God is not a human organization. It's not a human institution. Um, Paul later calls uh, the Corinthian creation God's field, God's building. Um, the, ch- the church is a divine institution. We just didn't make it up. Um, the church, like Paul, had to be called by God to faith in Christ. Um, so uh, the church in Corinth is one manifestation of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The church of God that is sanctified in Christ Jesus, um, despite all their troubles, um, and all that's going to start coming out real quick as Paul continues his letter, Paul says that the congregation of Corinth are saints who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified. It's, it's a passive. Um, it means that something happened in the past that you didn't have anything to do with, and it's still happening in the present um, as a uh, result of past action. So they didn't have anything to do with their being sanctified. They were declared to be sanctified um, by God. And it is a present state of affairs that is continuing on. Um, So it's a gift of God in Christ. Holiness is received and not achieved. That was maybe one way you could put it. So the church receives her holiness in holy baptism, where she's washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having been sanctified, Paul continually throughout his gospel appeal to the Corinthians, uh, he tells them, be what you are. Um, Live like saints who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Be a holy nation, Paul is telling the Corinthians, just as he told uh, other congregations. Called to be saints together, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the Corinthian congregation, those saints, um, are part of a much larger group of saints. Um, So called to be saints balances called to be an apostle. Um, Together with everyone who in every place calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds a lot like uh, like Joel, where it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul knew his Old Testament. Um, that text would have great meaning for, for Paul, um, because at his baptism, Ananias uh, said to Paul, rise, and, rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So he's kind of bringing in memories of his own baptism, bringing that to the congregation, having them remember that about their own baptisms and saying, live out, live out that sanctified life that you have been called into, calling on his name, putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result is salvation. That Jesus is both their Lord and ours reminds the congregation that they are among many who hold the name of Jesus as as Lord. Let's go on. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the same in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Paul's typical way of, of uh, greeting his congregation. Peace, shalom, is, gonna, is Jewish. And charis, Greek, is a Greek greeting. Um, Jews and Gentiles are included in this greeting. So when Paul says this, he's, Paul's actually conferring something on them. He's giving them something. Paul's pronouncing a blessing on the congregation. Grace and peace aren't merely wishes that Paul is wishing upon the congregation. Um, he's blessing the congregations, and these words convey uh, what they say. Um, there, it happens in reverse in Galatians when he says, let him be accursed. Um, there, he's pronouncing a curse. Here, with the Corinthians, he's pronouncing a blessing. And when you give your blessing to something, um, like you give your blessing to a child who's going to be doing something, you're giving uh, your approval, um, or at least your support. Um, it's, it's yours to give. You know, if my child wants to go and do something, and I say, I give you my approval, I give you my blessings, um, that's mine to give. Um, when you say goodbye, uh, I guess the etymology of that is God be with you. Um, uh, or God bless you when somebody sneezes. Um, most people don't think of an actual blessing. So, so when you, uh, it, Paul has something to give when he, when he says grace and peace to you. He's giving God's peace, the shalom, the wholeness, the fullness. He's giving God's grace, uh, to the, to the congregation. Um, uh, One thing uh, just to, to, to think about, when, when, when people bring their children to the Lord's table, which we encourage them to do, and they come forward to receive a blessing, and the pastor blesses them, in, in one sense, uh, uh, understand this. Um, there are things I have to give, and there are things that I don't have to give. Um, I can give my blessing to a child, but what we, uh, Pastor Rody and I, uh, always do is we tie the blessing that we give to that child to the blessing that God has already given them in the waters of their baptism. You see, God has something to give that he continually gives there. Okay, and I pronounce that blessing that's from God on that child at, at, at their baptism. We're going to stop here. I'm going to talk a little bit about a little bit more about grace and peace uh, starting next week, and I'll try to be here on time. The Lord be with you. All right, that was lecture number one in the First Corinthians series by Pastor Ron Hodel. Lecture number two will be right after the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We will have lecture number two on 1 Corinthians. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's Word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world than there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. No, seriously, Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't engage in in-depth biblical teaching like what you're hearing today. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 let me thank you for your support we cannot do what we're doing here without it all right here is the first actual full-on lecture on the full content of uh, first corinthians uh from pastor ron hodel here we go um this is just uh uh, on the on the screens up here uh, are some of the powerpoints that I just wanted to show you. Um, as I talked about, Corinth was known for its morality or its lack thereof. That was a port city, um, if you think about it, uh, and uh, known for its sexual vices. Uh, it had a temple to Apollos. It had three temples to Aphrodite. Uh, she's the goddess of love and beauty and sexuality. Um, she actually lived on Mount Olympus, but they had temples there for her in Corinth. Um, this is a picture, if you can see, this, this is a picture of Aphrodite in her younger years. Oop, homeschool alert. Um, and uh, um, as I said, uh, she, she dated Poseidon and Hermes. Um, she had uh, sisters, the Tree Nymphs and the Furies, and they were a girl band back uh, in Corinth. Uh, and she's the mother of Eros and Rode, or Rhodey. Uh, it's spelled, it's not, had no relationship to Pastor Rhodey at all. It's not even spelled the same, okay? Um, this is Aphrodite, uh, sitting for her sculptor. Uh, oops, homeschool alert. Uh, I don't want to offend anyone, okay? I'm trying to be careful. Uh, um, Corinth was, uh, also known for its religious pluralism, which gave it, uh, uh, gave the Christians in, in, uh, Corinth a, a, a problem. Of course, it thought of itself as a religious city. Probably every city thinks of itself as a religious city in one sh- way, shape, or form. Uh, there were sanctuaries to multiple gods and goddesses. Uh, they were the ones that came up with that. Uh, uh, coexist. Um, Islam, Buddhism, science, Judaism, paganism, Wiccans, and Christians. And can't we all just coexist? And they did fairly well at that. Uh, the problem was that uh, Christianity made exclusive claims that uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And uh, that, just like today, it, uh, our, our exclusive claims uh, make problems for us. Uh, not problems that we uh, want to get rid of so we'll quit making exclusive claims. But certainly, uh, uh, you know, we, we stand for one way, and that's, that's Christ. I, and I mentioned that I've uh, seen this as well. This, this uh, as opposed to uh, coexist, this says contradict. They can't all be true. John fourteen six so contradictmovement.org. just uh, for you there. Um, back to the text. Uh, we were at First uh, Corinthians chapter um, chapter one. We just started verse three. Uh, Grace uh, to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And of course, that's very often the way Paul begins his letters. Uh, that's the way he began uh, his letter to the church at Rome. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ from uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 7. It's Paul's typical way of greeting a congregation. Uh, Charis is a Greek greeting, uh, grace, and peace is a Jewish greeting, shalom. Uh, and uh, in his greeting then, Paul is including the Jews and the Greeks or, or the Gentiles. And when Paul says these things, he is conferring something. He's giving something to the congregation. He's pronouncing a blessing on the congregation. Uh, grace and peace, when Paul says that, those aren't just his wishes for the congregation. He's blessing them with these things. His blessing uh, conveys what the words are saying. Um, he does it in a reverse way in Galatians. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So he speaks, a, the, the reader of the letter to the Galatians is pronouncing a curse on the hearers. Um, here in Corinth, the one reading the, the letter is pronouncing a blessing. Um, when you give your blessing to someone, like if your child is planning to do something and you give a blessing to them, you give your approval to them or your support, you know, that's yours to give. All right. Um, just as I said at the end last week, uh, when, when you bring a small child who's not receiving the Lord's Supper to the Lord's table, the pastors, um, when they speak a word of blessing over the children, um, well, in one sense, the pastor doesn't have anything to give. There are things I have to give. There are things I don't have to give. But notice what we always tie the blessing to. We always, if you haven't been around the children who are up there, we always tie the blessing that we give to the children to the promise of salvation that they received from God in the waters of their baptism. That's a blessing that I have to give, okay? Because that's a blessing that God has already given uh, in, in the waters of baptism to the child. So grace and peace, Paul has a blessing to give. Uh, he's speaking for God. He's conveying something to the Corinthians. Um, and the first thing that Paul gives is he pronounces a word of grace to the congregation. Grace is God's highest gift, charis. There's nothing greater than God's grace. It's his favor. It's his forgiveness that he has bestowed, that he has given to undeserving people. Um, you know, or when you know that it's God's intent to be gracious to you, even though you are an undeserving person, even though we are poor, miserable sinners, God intends to be gracious to us, and indeed is in the cross, then you can have peace. You know, If you have to earn God's grace somehow, then you're not going to be at peace because you don't know whether you have earned it yet. And how do you determine whether you have earned it? Well, if your life's getting better and better, then God's being gracious to you. Oh, my gosh. Then it turns to a failure or something goes wrong and, you know, there's no, there's, there's no peace. 
But with, with, um, with knowing that God is gracious to you in Christ, then you can be at peace. And so he confers peace to the congregation as well. Um, the state of being reconciled to God. Um, peace because God has reconciled us to himself. And so now there can be completeness. There can be wholeness. There can be tranquility. There can be harmony. There can be shalom. Um, now we can all sit under our fig trees and know that we're safe and secure in Christ. Um, remember when Nathaniel came to, uh, was brought to Jesus and, and, uh, Nathaniel said to Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It wasn't that Jesus just knew that Nathaniel was way off somewhere where, you know, Jesus couldn't see him, and yet Jesus knew he was sitting there under a fig tree, and Jesus knows everything. The idea of being able to sit under your fig tree was to know that God has everything in hand, everything is done, and all you have to do in this life is to sit under your fig tree and contemplate the grace and the blessings of God. That's what was going through Nathaniel's mind when he's sitting under the fig tree. And Jesus says, I know what you were thinking. The grace of God, the peace of God is here in me. Um, so we can be at peace even in the middle of utter chaos because we know that God's got everything well in hand. Um, and so in light of that, God's grace and God's peace has an effect on us. Sometimes we really do feel that inner peace. Um, now I want to say maybe there's sometimes we don't, but we don't evaluate whether God's at peace with us, um, by whether we feel it or not. Maybe we do. And that's a great blessing. Maybe you don't sometimes, but you know that he's at peace with you because he has told you in his word that he's at peace with you. All right. Um, and then because, uh, of, uh, because God is, has been gracious to you, uh, and um, you know that from his word. And that, of course, then has an effect on your relationship with your neighbors, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, um, which is where Paul is going to be going in this epistle. That's kind of the, the central thing that he's going to be focusing on, is this congregation that is, is a strife-torn congregation who needs these gifts, the gifts of grace and peace, um, Paul is, 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 is going to be, he's, he's starting to get us to focus on, on the strife that's in this congregation that only grace and peace from Christ is going to be able to, to resolve. Um, and they're gifts that are given by both God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul does there is he, he accords Jesus equal status with the Father. Um, Jesus bestows divine gifts. He's called Lord. Um, be Yahweh, the only name uh, that belong the, the name that belongs only to God, uh, and he, so he equates Jesus, or at least gives Jesus equal status with the Father. Grace and peace um, through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four: I give thanks to my God always for you 
because of the grace that uh, grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed also among you. So with, I give thanks to my God always for you. Just kind of look at that section there. You know, with all of the problems that the Corinthian congregation had, with the problems they faced, uh, with the way that some in that congregation thought of him, some of the people in the congregation didn't like Pastor Paul. Um, uh, you'd expect that Paul would begin with a complaint. Um, kind of like he did with the, with the church in, in Galatians. I am astonished, he says to the Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You'd think he might start with a complaint. You guys never listen to me. No, but he doesn't do that. Um, he, 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 he starts with, with a focus on the grace of God because of the grace of of God that was given you. And it's abundant grace. It's grace given in Christ Jesus. I think of it like this. What he does is it's kind of like with your children. Um, you all have to know your own children. Um, but it seems to me that I, uh, I gain a hearing from my children if I have positive things to say to them, um, as opposed to constantly pointing out their failures always pointing out their inadequacies, um, always bringing up every mistake over and over and over and over again. Um, and I think Paul does the same thing here. He doesn't want the failures in the congregation to loom so large in his own mind um, and in the minds of those who are hearing him that the relationship between Paul and the congregation turns sour and... Uh, and everybody starts to lose sight of the abundant grace of God. And so as their faithful pastor, as their apostle, as their, their intercessor, I think, I, I give thanks to my God. That's prayer. He wants to assure them that he's praying for them. He wants to make sure that they know that he is giving thanks to God for them. Um, giving thanks despite everything that's going on. He says, uh, he says, you guys are my constant boast. He doesn't say that in this letter. He starts off his, his second letter to them, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.14. He says that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Um, He's going to, on the day of the resurrection, he's going to turn to Jesus and say, have you seen my congregation in Corinth? I'm, they are a great group of people in Christ. He tells them he's boasting of them. Um, and, and I don't think it's hollow flattery. Um, I think when, I just kind of compare it to children, um, when your child knows that you boast of them honestly, um, inside, I think there's a big part of a child who wants to live up to that boast. They want to, they, they want to be who you say they are. And I think that's what Paul's doing with the congregation. They don't, he's trying to think, they won't want to 
They'll want to, to not let him down. They want to let him down. Um, Paul wants them to live up to his boasting. Verse 5, why is he giving thanks? Verse 5, he says, because uh, you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. They've been given gifts. This congregation in Corinth has been given gifts, and they are using their gifts. They've been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. The problem, however, is in one way you're, you're attributes or your assets can become your liabilities. And I think that's what was going on in the congregation at Corinth. Is, is all speech and all knowledge a good thing? Yes, it is. Um, is speech and knowledge problematic for the congregation in Corinth? Yes, it is. And he's going to talk about that later on in, in, in the letter when, when writing about uh, the speaking in tongues. He'll be talking about that. Um, so there's speech You've been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Gnosis um, is the Greek word. Um, and from that word, we eventually get the, the, um, the heretical group of people called the Gnostics. Um, the Gnostics understand that salvation is based on knowing the right stuff. Salvation is based on knowing the right stuff. Now, is that true? Um, you have to know the right stuff. And the answer is, well, yes. Um, but what they did was they overemphasized being saved by knowledge. And uh, as this developed in the, in, in the, in the Gnostic community, um, they, they, uh, they, they turned it into a fee-based system where uh, you can pay and get more knowledge, and then you can, by that knowledge, uh, release that spark of God that you've got left in you somewhere. Maybe it's in your knee. I don't know where it is. And you can release that spark of God and, and, and let it separate from, from this, this nasty, terrible human material body uh, that was created by the demigods and uh, let that spark go back up to God. Um, that's where the Gnostics kind of ended up. Um, you can free your spirit from your mortal body. And, uh, and this whole, this whole knowledge thing wasn't, this whole Gnostic thing wasn't completely developed by the time Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Um, but there are, there are, there is a start to it. Um, and, uh, this knowledge became problematic. I know more than you kind of thing. Um, but it's interesting that Paul is thanking the, thanking God for the gifts the Corinthians have been given. Um, and, and I think he's being truthful. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's truly thanking God, even though they're misusing the gifts, even though they're overemphasizing gifts. Still, they are gifts from God, who is the good giver of all good gifts. And so he's thanking God for that. And uh, he says, I thank God... Uh, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Um, apparently, these gifts also included the miraculous. Um, the miracles that were bearing or giving testimony to the truth of the gospel. And one thought in the church, and probably the most prevalent one, is that miracles are often a mission field thing. Um, I don't know if you've talked to many missionaries, but, but uh, it's, it's almost as if 
they they see a lot of the miraculous. Um, and it's as if the miracles are confirming the words of the missionaries, the gospel of the missionaries. And, and then after the word is confirmed, after the word is believed, um, then the miracles end, or they lessen, or they're not that obvious to us. Um, and that's probably good. Uh, I think the only quote uh, that I know uh, by Kierkegaard uh, is, uh, uh, he said, uh, a faith begun by miracles needs miracles to sustain it. And I thought, that's a fairly interesting quote. If, if my faith was begun by miracles, um, then then I've got to have a greater miracle. It's like a drug addiction. I've got to have a greater one and a greater one and a greater one and a greater one. Uh, otherwise, uh, if I quit seeing the miracles, my, my faith is going to decline. Um, if the miracle just simply, like on the mission field, confirms the gospel, and then they believe the gospel, um, it's the Holy Spirit working through the Word, um, then you know the, the miracles can go away, and they still hold to the gospel. You know? Um, in fact, I think one of the... You think about miracles, and you think about different healings and things like that. You know, I think... The greatest miracle isn't a healing or something along that line. I think the greatest miracle is when somebody isn't healed and they still trust Jesus for their salvation and still love the Lord Jesus. That's, I think that's the greater miracle, the miracle of faith. Um, so the miraculous things that were going on in Corinth were things that were confirming the message of the gospel. What might speech have included? Well, it might have included the gift of tongues when he talks about all speech, tongues and its interpretation, prophecy and the weighing and the authenticating of prophecy, the teaching and the composing of hymns, uh, uh, and, and the gift of speech flowed from the knowledge that was in their minds, their hearts. And knowledge might have included the wisdom and understanding of the cross, uh, the appreciation of all of God's gifts, um, the ability to to uh, exercise spiritual discernment, to be wise, um, the specific gift of of uh, prophetic knowledge that he talks about later on, um, and these two gifts, speech and knowledge, uh, in a sense, they have an echo in Romans. Uh, Romans chapter ten, verse nine reads: "If you confess with your mouth, that's speech." The Lord, uh, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe, that's knowledge, in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he kind of, he kind of brings some of that in, uh, when he, when he's talking to the Romans. And so Paul's genuinely giving thanks to God for the gifts that God has given to his congregation, even though sometimes that congregation is a bit of a thorn in the flesh. Um, even though these gifts tended to puff the congregation up, cause them to be boastful uh, in, in, not, in not a good way. And because of that, Paul's going to be reminding them that everything they have, all these gifts, they have received as gift. You receive a gift not because you deserve it, but because it's gift from the giver. Otherwise, if it's something you've, you deserve, then you have earned it. And he's reminding the congregation, these are gifts that your God has given to you and you had nothing to do with it at all. 
Um, and so in doing that, he, he praises God for the gifts. He gives God his due. And he lets the congregation know that these gifts are going to become a main topic in the letter. Some of the things that was causing the congregation to divide was a misuse of the gifts that the gracious, that our gracious God has given to them. And so Paul's going to correct some of the distortions that are going on with these gifts, and he's going to uh, help them develop a, a correct understanding of, of Christian speech, a correct understanding of Christian knowledge. Um, but regardless of their misuse, these gifts are a testimony that the Holy Spirit is working in this congregation. They wouldn't have these gifts if the Holy Spirit hadn't been creating faith in them. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Um, I want to say um, they're not lacking. God's given them what what He wants to give them, and uh, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Uh, in other words, keep the focus right when you're on when when it comes to gifts. Don't become so intoxicated with the gifts that you no longer eagerly await the coming of the Lord. In other words, the gifts are not the end-all, be-all of things. Um, rather, the, the, the gifts are simply a down payment, if you will, um, a guarantee of a much greater inheritance. And so for the Corinthians who were preoccupied in the present day, for the, for the Corinthians who were preoccupied with, with all their gifts, Paul finds it essential to bring them back to where all this is going and keep before them the Lord's day, the last day. Right? And he's going to and he's and, and it's the Lord Jesus who will sustain them to the end guiltless. It's not it doesn't mean that he's going to sustain them as morally perfect people who used to sin, but now they become Christians, and now they're never going to sin again, and they're guiltless. Um, because that's not the congregation. Um, that's not your pastor. Um, that's not this congregation. All people are sinners. What Paul is, means is that no one is going to be able to bring a charge against them since Jesus has become their righteousness. From Romans chapter 8, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Um, Christ has become their righteousness. All right. Uh, from John chapter, John chapter 16, uh, uh, that, that section when, when, uh, uh, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the congregation, uh, Jesus says, when he comes, the, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Um, 
the ruler of this world, Satan, is judged. Satan, which means accuser, your accuser, who is, if you will, he is his own, he is his own prosecuting attorney. That's who he is. And he shows up in heaven's courtroom and he's going to prosecute you. And he knows the law inside out, backwards and forwards, and he has evidence on you from the, the beginning to the end. You don't stand a chance. Um, but because Jesus is your righteousness, and he's declared you to be righteous, you are. And so Satan, the prosecuting attorney, is disbarred and he's thrown out of the courtroom of heaven forever. He will never be able to accuse you because of the righteousness that is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, you are preserved guiltless. You know how it's going to be in the courtroom if, if that was a courtroom, you know, the last day and Satan brought up all charges against you, you know how it's going to turn out. He's not allowed in. He's disbarred. God is faithful, Jesus says. God is faithful in verse 9. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. Paul can give this kind of assurance because God is faithful. God's going to keep his promise. He's not going to change his mind. Yeah, he might, he might, uh, preserve you guiltless, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I, you know, he's going to let Satan in and, and, uh, he's going to prosecute me. And Paul says, whoa, wait a minute. No, God is faithful. God is, keeps his promises. As, as, so as surely as, as God has called them and brought them into the fellowship of his son, he's going to sustain them, he promises, guiltless to the end. Guiltless in God's sight because we've been covered by the robe of Christ. We've been covered by Christ's righteousness. His righteousness has been credited to your account. It's been imputed to you. It's not yours, it's his, but it's, it's credited to you. You look in your bank account and you go, whoa, my gosh. Um, just as an aside, that's, that's what the alb is. When, we, when we, the pastors cover themselves with the alb, um, it's not uh, because we're more important than you or anything else. That alb, that white garment that we wear up in, in the chancel is, is to remind you of the robe of Christ's righteousness that, has, that is covering you as well. Um, Used to, uh, you, you might find some congregations where uh, they wear cassock and surplus. Uh, and the cassock is is is, is a black garment. You know, we often wear one uh, during during the season of Lent at the at the Lent and Vespers services, um, and that's covered with a with a, for lack of a better word, like a toga. Sorry, um, it's a white garment that covers you, uh, and um, uh, and, and it's to remind us that that we are covered by the robe of Christ. And it's not just the pastor standing up there. Um, that's to remind you that God sees you that way too. And then the stole, the colorful stole, that changes colors during the season of the church year, that's, that's like, that was modeled after a yoke 
that you put over an ox's neck. Um, you put that yoke over the ox's neck, and then you tell the ox, ah, go lay down and rest for a while. No, you say, pull. Okay, and the yoke, uh, uh, the, the ordination of, of a pastor is that when that yoke is put on him, it says, now pull. Okay. Um, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, with that, Paul starts to introduce one of the issues that he's going to need to deal with. Uh, unity as opposed to factionalism. Uh, corporate Catholicity. You know, we're one body, one church, as opposed to me and my Jesus, individualism. Uh, we believe body talk uh, as opposed to my personal faith. Um, he's reminding them that fellowship with Christ is a basis for the fellowship that they have among Christians. Um, by drawing them into the fellowship of his son, God draws them into fellowship with with one another as well. Uh, the two realities are inseparable. If I'm in fellowship with Christ, and you're in fellowship with Christ, I need to be in fellowship. I'm in fellowship with you. Um, and if I'm not, we need to figure out what's going on here. Okay? Because unity was very important. Not unity based on can't we all just get along. Unity based on Christ and the gospel. Um, but... Uh, Still, unity was, was very important because there were divisions in the church. And that kind of brings us to the, to the next section, divisions. Um, he says, I appeal to you, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, "I follow Paul," or "I follow Apollos," or "I follow Cephas," or "I follow Christ." Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Um. At this point, Paul turns to the big issue or the big theme for the epistle. Uh, it's kind of typical of what Paul does in all of his epistles. He states the theme at the beginning, he works through it, and then he repeats the theme at the end. And Paul's great concern here is the need to restore the church's unity. Um, some say that verse 10 is the theme or the theme verse of, of, of the whole book. Um, he deals with the main problem in Corinth. See, behind all of the problems, and he had many to deal with, he had Christians suing one another, he had um, uh, people speaking in unintelligible tongues, He uh, whether women should be wearing head coverings or not, he had marital issues that he was having to deal with, he had uh, whether or not you're allowed to eat at the temple dining room across the street, uh, he had all that to deal with, but behind all of that uh, is uh, is division. And Paul's going to be dealing with that 
for especially the first four chapters, but you could probably say for the rest of the book. And this, this is kind of the basic problem. You have a new group of Christians uh, there in the congregation at Corinth. And they take their Christianity seriously. And I think one, in one sense we, we miss that. Uh, we like to think that our opponents don't take Christianity seriously or don't take things seriously, and we do. And I don't think that's true here. They might be misguided, but it's not that they don't take it seriously. Um, and these new Christians are struggling. They're struggling to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian. I am a Christian in the sermon this morning. Um, what's it mean to be baptized into Christ and at the same time live in a cosmopolitan port city with all of its virtues and vices, and they were mostly vices? What's it mean to be a Christian and to live in that world? Um, how does one live in Christ and deal with temple dining rooms? How does one live in Christ and figure out whether you can buy meat at the market or not? Um, how do you settle disagreements and, and differences? How do you live in Christ and in the world at the same time? Um, uh, some people were saying, I can eat in the temple dining room because I'm free in Christ. And other people would say, no, you're not because you have God's will to consider. And they say, well, I am considering God's will. And then, of course, it starts, uh, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Uh, and then you go back and forth. Um, and what, what about... Uh, your new-to-the-faith Christian neighbor who's scandalized by your eating practices. Um, so there's division over how far one should exercise their Christian freedom, and that sets up uh, uh, some of the, the, the divisions um, or the, the things that Paul talks about in the rest of the letter. He says, he says, I appeal to you brothers. That's a term of endearment. He uses it about 39 times in the epistle. Um, brothers can mean co-workers. Uh, they can mean, uh, it can mean men who led congregations. It can also mean fellow Christians. And I think that's how Paul is using it here. He's calling them fellow Christians. By saying brothers, Paul's implying that they are in the same church of God together. Um, they are part of the same body, the body of Christ. Um, and he's assuming unity. Uh, but, and here's the problem, they're not expressing that unity. Uh, the brothers are divided. And brothers here uh, does include women. So you women, you still need to listen even though he's talking to the brothers. Um, we've all been adopted. Uh, the Father has adopted us all into uh, the sonship that belongs to Jesus by nature. Uh, so, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Um, so here women are called sons. We're all sons of God. Women are called sons there. Brothers sometimes. Um, if that bothers you, uh, then you also have to remember that men are called the bride of Christ. Okay, so we... Uh, scripture's not politically correct. It just does it. Um, and so according to the New Testament terminology, all Christians, whether men, women... Children, slave, free, they are all brothers by virtue of their common sonship in Christ. The Son. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul urges them, based on their fellowship in Christ, 
based on the name into which they were baptized, Christ's name, based on apostolic authority, um, which was an authority of his own that he came up with, but, but he's being, he's one who is sent by Christ. Um, Paul urges them to be united in the faith. Um, so Jesus, Jesus is the basis, uh, for the unity that they have. Um, and Paul's bringing them back to the basis, back to the basics. It's Christ. It's Christ. That's where you got to keep your focus. Um, And there isn't unity. There are divisions, factions. The word means there's a tear. There's a tear in the garment. And Paul's concern is that the tear is developing in the unity that they they have. Um, and he says that just can't be. Uh, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. How can there be a tear in that, folks? Uh, and so Paul addresses them as one church. Um, there's a unity that is theirs in Christ. And it's a unity that's being torn apart. And because we're in Christ, it, it can't be torn apart. But it's happening. It's happening. Uh, and so he's needs to help them see each other in Christ and bring things back together again. Um, and the divisions, finally, are, are doctrinal things. They're doctrinal things. And so... Uh, so he's got to bring them back to what he had been teaching them in the beginning. Um, he appeals to them that they be united in the same mind and same judgment, to be restored to the same mind, the same convictions, um, to be mended, uh, to be restored. The, the word there is the word that they use to mend uh, fishing nets. Um, and the Corinthians are to patch things up between themselves. Not in an artificial way, but in a real way, to get back to the basics. And he says, it's been reported to me, I, I've been informed, um, it's been made clear to me by Chloe's people. Um, in other words, what he says is, what he's heard is not an idle rumor. Uh, it comes from a very solid, respectable source, from Chloe's people. He names them. Um, uh, now, that... that might be uh, the people who meet in Chloe's house, you know, part of that congregation perhaps. Or it also could mean Chloe's people, uh, people who are in her employment who are Christians. Because some think that Chloe might have been a, a wealthy lady uh, who had, uh, uh, had a congregation meeting in her house, but she also had employees, and those employees were letting Chloe know and, and uh, then also Paul that there was quarreling that had become widespread in Corinth. And, the, and, and uh, he said, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Um, he starts off with himself. Uh, I follow Paul. Um, Paul's name is one of the names that people are quarreling about. Um, uh, Paul disapproves of all the groups, and he starts he starts with his own, even the Paul group. I don't I don't approve of this, um, uh, because and he he nails all them all because they're not concerned so much 
with the truth of the gospel, and rather it seems they they're they're consumed by their status. Um, I think I follow the Paul group. Uh, I don't know if it's this way, so, but um, it's like congregations. People, you know, we're we, we're proud of our congregations, but you know. I go to St. John's across the street, Lutheran Church. Well, I go to St. Matthew's on the other side of town. We've got this, we've got that. And we kind of boast of, of, uh, boast of congregations. And instead of boasting in the one who gives us unity, which is, is Christ Jesus. Um, so he says, some, some, I follow Paul. Uh, he, he was the missionary there. He spent a year and a half starting the congregation. And there were people saying, we stick with Paul. And others, Apollos. Um, Apollos was an eloquent speaker. Uh, he was one of those who could brilliantly craft sentences. He was a wordsmith. Um, he's the kind of people that everybody likes to listen to. Um, he had good oratory skills. Uh, he was good at winning over a following following of people, um, you know. Uh, you you got you just got to come to our church and hear and hear my pastor. You know, I, I'd rather people say you just got to come to my church and hear about my Jesus. It doesn't matter who the pastor is, as long as proclaiming Jesus. But but Apollos is one of those who is just a wordsmith. Um, so I follow Apollos. Um, I follow Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Um, Paul often calls Peter by his Aramaic name, Cephas. Um, of course, Peter, the rock, uh, was enormously important in the, in the early church. Uh, we know Peter went to Rome. He probably traveled through Corinth. It would be a natural stopping place. Um, there were probably some people who glommed on to Peter there in, in Corinth. Or maybe they were the Judaizers who wanted to retain some status for the law. And Peter would have been a natural one for that because Peter always seemed to be a little bit willing to, to compromise with the Judaizers. Uh, you remember that section in Galatians where, uh, where, where Paul rebukes Peter. Uh, um, but when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So maybe that was the, the you know the, the group of, of Judaizers that wanted to follow follow Peter. And then there's the I follow Christ group. Um, and we don't exactly know what to make of that. Uh, perhaps this was a group that was um, reacting against all of the other groups, uh, kind of a, a group that says a pox on all of your houses. We just follow Christ. Um, or maybe it was a group that saw themselves as even more spiritual, more gifted than everybody else. Um, well, you know, we put Jesus first. Yeah. Um, uh, that kind of thing. Um, how do you compete with that? Uh, or maybe they didn't recognize that, uh, they didn't recognize Peter's 
apostleship. They didn't recognize his authority that was given to him by Christ. Uh, that might have been uh, that might have been this group as well. But the basic problem here is that people are identifying with the evangelist and not with the person of Christ. There were cults of personality arising in the congregation. There were people more interested in personalities than they were in the the one true doctrine. Um, and when that happens, then then there's a then there's a unity that's torn. Um, the person of the evangelist isn't important. Who's preaching this Sunday isn't important. Um, it's what's being preached. Um, and that's what Paul brings up, uh, brings up next, uh, is Christ divided. Do we go till quarter, quarter after? All right. Maybe, maybe at this point I'll just stop and any, any thoughts that come to your mind, please, uh, feel free. Um, we're just getting started. I have an A and a B question. Okay. (laughs) The A question is, who were the elders of this church? And the B question is, this church sounds worse than any church on the corner we have nowadays. And I'm, I'm kind of, um, struck that, that he treats them as brothers and in love calls them back to unity and admonition and, but he doesn't call them a heretic and walk away. No, he doesn't. Like we tend to do nowadays. Yeah, he doesn't call them heretics and walk away because the spirit is still working in the congregation and he knows that. Um, uh, and, and he doesn't want to lose he doesn't want to lose anybody in this congregation. Um, and so this congregation, with all of its, with all of its problems, it's still important. Um, Christ died for these people, and Paul's just not going to give up on them. Just as Christ, Jesus, doesn't give up on us, you know, he, he, he's not going to give up on his congregation. He loves his congregation. He poured his sweat, blood, and tears into this congregation, and he's going to do what he can to, to, um, to bring them back uh, to a unity in Christ. Um, who are the elders of this congregation? We don't, we don't know. There would have been some leaders in the congregation. Um, some of the wealthy people that we mentioned last week uh, might have been leaders. Chloe wasn't an elder. This was the church that maybe met in her house or her employees. Um, but uh, elder pastor is the same thing in Scripture. All right? um, so we don't exactly know who the pastors were. All right? But there were there were different places that they met in different houses. The most notable one being right next to the synagogue. Uh, so you know, the people in the synagogue could hear what was being preached in the, in the house church right next door um, because double pane windows weren't existing yet for another 50 years. Uh, and so it, you know, we know more about where they met as opposed to who the pastors were specifically. I always struggle with these kinds of things because, um, you know, we want unity. We want everyone to, I mean, we are all one body, no matter what the label of your house of worship. There's only, we are Christians and there's people that belong to different expressions of that Christian faith. So when we have different denominations, they're not, it's not a different religion. It's just they're, a different expression of the Christian faith. So they have a little different format with their worship service. My struggle is always, um, you know, it's like truth. 
unity whenever possible, but truth at all cost. Okay. And there's so much of, um, there's so many different views of, say, the sacraments or, uh, or what it means to be in Christ. And that now, you know, that there's, there's so many times when I want to, I want to, in kindness, pull people aside and talk to them, but this is what they always throw in my face because uh, I'm not being, I am not holier than anybody else. I am a miserable sinner who deserves wrath, but I have been baptized into Christ and I, I'm a thankful girl, but this is, this is always the, the tension. I face this regularly and I don't, um, really know what to say to somebody once they, they, they will pull these kinds of verses out and I'm the problem then. Mm-hmm. And so, but, and then I think, okay, they want me to shut up, but th- I still think that it's, there's still a grasp the truth about what the things that Christ gave us to keep his word and what he has sent them, set, set it forth for them to be believing about him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how do we deal with that sometimes? Those are tough ones. Those are very tough ones. Um, uh, it's your, first off, you got to know your audience. Um, and I'm just going to use a for instance, and then you can kind of go from there. But, but, uh, one of the things that I, uh, learned to do, uh, from actually Chris Roseborough talked about it, um, was, uh, uh, when, when talking about, for instance, baptism, um, when, when, uh, what, what I'll often do, uh, especially if I'm on a call, is to ask people, well, what they, you know, if the topic is baptism, what do you believe about baptism? Okay. And I write it down or have them write it down. Okay. Cause it's really easy to say, Oh, I didn't say that. Well, this is where you've got it written down. Okay. What do you believe about baptism? All right. And then simply take the texts of baptism in scripture. You can, you can take five, 10, 15, 20 and just look at the text. Just I just look at the text and say, what does this text say about baptism? Okay? Um, uh, yeah. After all, baptism doesn't save. Then we get to Peter. Um, baptism now saves you. Just write it down. What, what's the Bible say about baptism? And then kind of just look at the list of the things that we've found in Scripture and what they believed and say, what, help me understand. Um, and now that takes some time. You got to know your audience. You got to have, you got to, you know, things have to be right for that. That's not a, that's not an elevator conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other things, you know, you simply, um, well, they, you know, the, the contradict movement, they can't all be true. So that either, either they're, either they're all, they can all be wrong, but, uh, they can't all be true. Um, so, uh, Dale, and then we're, Oh, I, oh, we're out of time. Sorry, Dale. <laughs> On this whole uh, unity thing, it seems to me that what Paul is saying, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is unity is a good thing, right? But what I think Satan likes to do is take something that's a good thing and make it the only good. And it's the good that we must sacrifice all other things too. And he likes to do it at different times. So here we are. In a period of time where syncretism, right, combining everything into one awful mush is rampant. And what do we, you know, this is when we have coexist bumper stickers and all that other baloney that 
calls for unity. We really need to be united. That's not our problem in this era. Our problem in this era is that we've lost the faith. And we need to right, get back to the true Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And forget about, you know, oh, I have to be politically correct and we have to all pray together and the Buddhists and the Christians and the Muslims all have to hold hands. That's not our, our problem today isn't right. That we're divided, that we're so, you know, divided and we need to be put together. We can't, yeah, we can't lose this distinctiveness. Uh, Christianity makes some exclusive claims and we can't just let those exclusive claims go, uh, for the sake of unity. Christ said them, God said them. Uh, we can't give those up. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Satan will use anything to, to, uh, to get to us. Unity, whatever. Okay. The Lord be with you. Thank you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter and they're at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>